welcome. This is the UC Santa Cruz News Roundup podcast for the weeks of March 18 through 30, 2018. I'm Gwen Jordanay, and I'm an editor in the Communications and Marketing Office at UC Santa Cruz. And we have a guest host this episode. Yes, uh, I am J.D. Hillard. I'm a writer also in communications and marketing at UC Santa Cruz. All right. Well, welcome, J.D. Thank you for sitting in. Dan White will return next time, we hope. Um, but for get now, well, Dan. Get well, Dan. Hope you're feeling better. But for now, J.D. and I are going to get into the recent news from UC Santa Cruz, all of which you can find at news.ucsc.edu. But first... Today, we have a public service announcement. The Alumni Student Volunteer Service Day at the UC Santa Cruz Farm is April 14th. Volunteers will get to serve on the farm, and there will be an education portion that'll share the connection between food harvested at the farm and the campus dining halls and food pantries. The event is called A Day at the Farm, UC Santa Cruz Alumni and Student Volunteer Service Day, and it'll be 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Saturday, April 14. For more information, there's a Facebook page for the event. So on Facebook, search UCSC Alumni slash Student Service Day at the Farm, or Google UCSC Alumni slash Student Service Day at the Farm. That sounds like a great way to actually like get inside the farm. Like I know. Get a, a look around at how the farm makes all the wonderful food. Exactly, and it's so just peaceful and serene out there. I totally recommend just going out and checking it out or doing this great sounding service day and you can go out and dig some dirt. All right, so now let's dig into the recent news. <laughs> um, speaking of digging dirt, you may have seen some interesting new structures at the UC Santa Cruz farm. There are these things called ag tunnels or hoop houses, and they're part of UC Santa Cruz's plan to help fight food insecurity which is, sadly, a problem faced by an astonishing number of students, according to a UC report from 2016. The hoop houses, there are four of them, and their greenhouse-like structures, will allow the UC Santa Cruz farm and garden to provide a year-round supply of healthy, low-cost produce to dining halls, food pantries, and market pop-ups on campus. They're also at the center of a new focus for the farm and garden. The problem of food, student food insecurity came to light in that UC study, which found 19% of students reported they sometimes had gone hungry during the year. That's, that's a, you know, just astonishing, isn't it? Another 23% said they had limited access to a variety of good quality food because of a lack of money. In California, 14% of households face food insecurity, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. UC has pledged to make sure students have enough nutritious food to eat, and the farm is part of that pledge. The farm's going to send more farm-raised produce to dining halls, free food pantries that serve low-income students, and pop-up farm stands on campus. The hoop houses mean students will have greater variety of veggies, especially during cold, rainy winters when choices can be limited to things like potatoes and kale. The tunnels also add about a quarter acre of productive land to the farm. The first planting of about half of one hoop house will yield about 700 heads of lettuce and 200 pounds of spinach. A plan to have days when students can harvest their own fruits and vegetables also is in the works, along with surveys to find out exactly the kind of produce students want. So let's hope you know all these plans really help and students can get the good food they need. 
I hear those crops are going to be intense. Intense? You mean because they're raised in hoop houses? And <laughs> <laughs> well, they should be extra nutritious. All right, so let's talk some more about dirt. Hey, JD, you knew that trees exchange nutrients with soil, fungi, underground, right? Oh, totally. I knew that. Yeah. Totally. You yeah, absolutely, absolutely, completely yeah, knew I that. Can, yeah. I can tell you all about that. Okay. No, no I can't. <laughs> okay. Neither did I. So now that we all know that, it turns out what happens down below may have big implications above ground too. A major new study shows that soil fungi could play a large role in forests' ability to adapt to environmental change. Kai Zhu, who's an assistant professor of environmental studies here, took a unique big data approach to investigating the role of symbiotic fungi in tree migration in forests across the eastern United States. He says our climate is changing, is rapidly changing, and our forests are responding, but in very slow motion. What he wanted to do was identify factors that contribute to the pace of that response. There's no evidence yet that eastern forests are shifting their geographical ranges higher in response to warming temperatures, according to Zhu, but understanding how fungi relationships affect ecosystems will help us predict how forests will respond to climate change. Zhu's study is one of the first to use the USDA's large-scale data set to see how climate change is affecting the ecosystem. It's a unique approach, and it's more good information to have as the earth warms and we try to understand what it means for us all, you know? So here's a story from the spring issue of UC Santa Cruz Magazine, which just came out and is online at magazine.ucsc.edu. It's a story of more great research coming out of here. So JD, were you aware there is a toxin lurking in every household in America? Another one? <laughs> I know, it's like, ah. Uh. But luckily, one of our chemists is racing to find a remedy. Chemistry professor Rebecca Braslow, an organic chemist, has made it her mission to protect people and the environment from the problematic molecules called phthalates which leach from plastic. Yeah, you have heard of these. Yep. Yeah. The chemical can mimic hormones and cause health problems for people, especially children and particularly baby boys. In the 1920s, the fusion of phthalate ester plasticizer with polyvinyl chloride, or PVC, launched the boom of the plastics industry. And boy, do we see that now with everything is plastic from toys to car insides to try, try doing a day without plastic exactly sometime. like your food containers everything it's incredible phthalates can turn pvc which is a hard and brittle material into a supple and flexible plastic the more phthalates are used the more flexible the material becomes and now phthalates are found in pvc worldwide they are responsible for bendy garden hoses hospital iv bags and that new car smell as plastic ages, the phthalates leach out. Even brand new plastic is leaching phthalates. It turns out phthalates are of a similar size and shape as some hormones and can fool the endocrine signaling pathways in the body. Phthalates are often called hormone mimickers or endocrine disruptors because they interfere with the endocrine system. Their ability to stand in for hormones can cause health problems, especially in young boys or pregnant women. For example, they can lower sperm count or cause birth defects in the male reproductive system. They've also been linked to diabetes and thyroid irregularities. 
Braslow has made it her mission to do something about the problem. She set out to make an alternative to phthalates that would retain its desired qualities without the negative health hazards. If Braslow's technique works, the consumer won't realize the plastic has changed, yet the negative effects on health and environment could end. Other scientists around the world are also making strides toward finding a solution, and Braslow is hopeful that phthalates will soon be a thing of the past. So, wow, I'm really looking forward to seeing where her research leads. Yeah, that, yeah. it would be really nice to see that change happen. Exactly. Okay, so, J.D., what's on your news radar? Uh, well, I bet you've been wondering what's been going on with sea stars. Yes, I totally have. It's so strange that you had asked that. <laughs> uh, all right. It's, uh, unfortunately, uh, if you're a sea star on the West Coast, you've actually been probably having a pretty bad oh, few years. Oh, no. Might have heard about a uh, strange wasting disease that's been going up and down the West Coast for uh, since about 2013. Yeah. And unfortunately, my news is that we still don't really know what's going on. Ah, uh, shoot. Yeah, sea star wasting syndrome also, by the way, is just gruesome. Mm -hmm. uh, you could call it more like dissolving syndrome. Ugh. They get lesions, they start falling apart, and then they turn into mush in like a few days. And this can happen, it can go through a population and take away 90% of the sea stars just like that. Wow. Uh, they've gone through die-offs kind of like this before, but this is the biggest one that's been recorded, and this one just keeps on going. So you hear about environmental disasters and maybe you're thinking with polar bears there's starvation because we drive too much and change the climate. Bees are dying because we use pesticides. So what are we doing that's killing sea stars? Yeah. And right now there doesn't seem to be a clear human-driven cause. Hmm. Uh, but not a lot of clear causes uh, at all have been able to be determined. They're testing a lot of possibilities. Mm -hmm. They've been checking whether the water is getting warmer and that's causing the disease, but that, there's no clear correlation there. There's no clear correlation with where pollution is showing up. Uh, and they do have a lot of information to check. And much of what we do know comes from a program led in part by UCSC. The multi-agency Rocky Intertidal Network. Uh, for decades, uh, scientists have been going out regularly te uh, checking on tide pools up and down the West Coast, mm -hmm. counting animals, counting which ones are babies, which ones are full-grown, uh, and uh, Melissa Miner mm -hmm. uh, has been crunching that data. She's an ecology and evolutionary biology researcher. She's been studying the die-off almost since it started uh, and since when she was a grad student here. It's not clear what causes the disease. Let me say that again. There is just no evidence. There was evidence suggesting uh, viral infection was causing it, but then there were more experience that, experiments that made it look like that viral infection wasn't the cause. And this is having a big effect, effect on the environment where the sea stars live. Uh, ecologists call one kind of sea star the Pisaster ochraceus, or the ochre star, a keystone species in tide pools. Ogre stars are like Roombas, eating <laughs> mussels. Uh, without them, the mussels can take over the tide pools. And that doesn't leave room for all the other animals in the tide pools. On the seafloor near the coast, divers have seen more sea urchins and fewer abalone, which might mean that there are fewer, uh, less sea stars out there eating mm -hmm. up urchins. And then the urchins are spreading, crowding out the other creatures. 
So where does it look like this is heading? Miner says the sea stars are still getting sick uh, and that the populations are still way down from where they were before 2013, but maybe the declines are leveling off. Hmm. She's watching to see if a recovery is coming and what that recovery will look like. Because she's a scientist. She watches things. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I oh. guess good luck, sea stars. Oh, my gosh. Little sea stars. Well, let's hope she finds out what it is very soon. Yeah. Uh, now there's good news. Yay! Extraordinary things are coming to the UC Santa Cruz Arboretum and Botanic Gardens. Uh, and here is one of them. Imagine you're walking through what's already an amazing landscape of trees and shrubs from New Zealand or South mm -hmm. Africa, and you enter a stand of redwoods. In the midst of the sound of wind in the branches, the calls of hawks and the squeaks of hummingbirds, you hear some other sounds. Uh, some of these sounds are tranquil, noises like forest animals, but you can tell that they don't belong, they aren't from around here. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of the sounds are probably alarming, like gunfire, Ooh. explosions, and it's all part of an art installation called Forest for a Thousand Years. Oh. It uses more than 30 speakers and creates a landscape of sound within the landscape of the Arboretum. It uses a technology called ambisonics, which creates a sense that the sound is taking place in three dimensions. So, like stereo plus. Wow, cool. Yeah, and for some of the sounds, uh, you can't tell whether they're coming from the speakers or the trees. The, the installation is made to kind of blend into the environment that it's in. That's completely on purpose. It's part of the, part of the whole object is that the art is part of the landscape that it's in. Uh, the artists are Canadians Janet Cardiff and George Burris Miller. Uh, they're hoping that your experience will be one of evoked history or memory, um, seeing uh, visions maybe, other sensations. Uh, it's a, uh, from an event called Documenta, which was a world-renowned art exhibition in Germany in 2013. Now it's here, uh, and it is part, uh, is one of the things that is brought to UC Santa Cruz by our fairly new Institute of Arts and Sciences. Uh, the goal of the IAS, Institute of Arts and Sciences, is to bring exhibitions and performances, uh, hopefully adventurous ones like this one, to the campus, and especially ones that explore big questions. It's opening on April 7th. Again, it's at UC Santa Cruz's Arboretum in the Redwood Grove, uh, and you should visit the UC Santa Cruz Arboretum whether you're going to go experience groundbreaking art or not. It is a beautiful garden of plants that thrive in dry climates. Uh, the Forest for a Thousand Years installation um, will be there until June 30th. Uh, learn more about parking admission and how to get there at this URL, arboretum.ucsc.edu. Cool. Well, that sounds so interesting and really unique. I've never heard of a soundscape type of thing like that. Yeah, it's going to be, I mean, I think that it's worth experiencing. And there's plenty of time to check it out. Try to go early, though. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the last uh, news roundup, you and Dan mentioned that part of the upcoming Alumni Weekend, mm -hmm. that's on April 27th through 29th, yeah. is the annual Noel King Memorial Lecture and a talk about Sharia by Mark Massoud. Yeah. So just quickly, the lecture is named for Professor, Professor Noel King, 
a pioneering and beloved UC Santa Cruz researcher. He died in 2009 uh, when he was teaching here. His comparative religious studies classes were extremely popular. Uh, and this year's lecture will be by Mark Massoud. And he's an associate professor of legal studies and politics. He's been doing extensive research on the practice of law in Sudan and Somalia. And the talk is titled, The Struggle for Sharia, Islamic Law in Modern Times. So here's my tease. Hmm. Sharia might not be what you think it is. Mm, yeah. <clears throat> right now in California, there are some great reasons for us all to understand it better. Hmm. Sharia, of course, has been a target and a buzzword lately. Uh, one example, uh, Newt Gingrich uh, on a certain news network warning that stealth jihadists wish to replace Western civilization with Sharia. Uh, once again, uh, as is commonly the case, reality is more complicated than people with political motives are portraying it. <laughs> yes. Uh, Masood says, one thing Sharia is not is a set of laws all Muslims are supposed to follow. It's more like a subtle and nuanced set of traditions to help Muslims lead, lead an ethical existence. And right now there's a lot going on around Sharia. California is a state with one of the largest populations of Muslims. And Masood says Californian Muslims are doing their own research in this topic. They're learning how Sharia offers an Islamic basis for environmentalism, justice, and once again, ethics. Uh, Masood is a great authority. He grew up in Sudan. He holds a law PhD, and he's done a lot of research, again, on how some, the law is practiced in Somalia and Sudan. Uh, this will be a great way to get beyond the simple story. I highly recommend taking one hour of your time to hear this talk. Uh, and by the way, joining him for the talk will be Lori King. Um, so she is Noel King's widow. Uh, she is the author of the best-selling Sherlock Holmes, Mary Russell novels, and she is a UC Santa Cruz alumna. Yeah. So that's April 28th. Find out how to register and learn about all the great things going on during Alumni Weekend uh, at alumniweekend.ucse.edu. Exactly. Well, that just sounds fascinating, and uh, you could learn so much that you didn't you never thought of or was unexpected. And there's, a, like you said, there's a ton going on for Alumni Weekend, so it'll be really dynamic and really fun. So we hope you check it out. All right, well, that's the news for this week, and we will see you next time. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Talk to you later. Thank you.